Well, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us today for part of your lunchtime for a presentation with Consolidated Planning Group and uh, Custom Consulting, Co Custom College Consulting. I'm sorry, Jody, I didn't mean to mess that up. Um, today, we're going to address getting ready for the process of applying to colleges for families with students with special needs. My name is April Martin, and I am the Student Hireability Navigator here at Workforce Solutions Texoma. I have four children of my own, and we are currently navigating those choppy college waters ourselves with our own special needs child. So we look forward to learning today together, and I'll go ahead and turn it over to Allison. Thanks, April. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. Allison Scobberg here at Consolidated Planning Group. Uh, we are a holistic special needs financial planning firm. Um, we do a lot of webinars on a pretty regular basis surrounding topics um, uh, for special needs. We are nationally certified as Social Security Advisors and members of the Special Needs Planning Academy. Um, we can help you set up ABLE accounts, um, do those transition planning um, programs, set up lifetime care plans, and really help you plan the future for both yourself uh, in your own retirement and your loved one. Our, things look a little bit different when we have a loved one um, with special needs that may have care needs the rest of their life, uh, not just till 18 or 22. Um, so we'll talk more about that um, in a little bit. But I am really, really excited to have Jody Glau back with us um, because she is kind of one of a kind here and um, one of a kind in, in a way that she is really, really nuanced and in, in consulting families that have a loved one with a disability looking at higher education options. And she's really, really um, specialized in this. And so what I would say, so I've done this, I have four kids too, and I've done this whole, um, it's madness is what it is, just the, the college madness and the applications and the FAFSA, there's so much, It's and it's pretty overwhelming. And that's for your neurotypical kids, but when you have a um, a child that may have some learning differences or a disability, um, really, really careful consideration goes in um, to all of this. And you know, Jody, there's a lot of things that we do, but being a specialist on you know the the college application journey and some of these things, and really getting in the weeds and knowing what programs are out there all across the U.S., not just in Texas. Uh, that is not what we do, but this is where Jody comes in. So Jody, thanks for being um, here with us today, and um, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for having me. It's good to see so many people joining us today during during your lunchtime. Uh, so, uh, as Allison said, my name is Jody Glau with Custom College Consulting, and I work very closely helping guide students with a neurodiverse population with the college planning process, and which can be very confusing at times, and even more confusing now post COVID and how schools are really handling everything. So we're going to start today with just a little fact or fiction slide. Um, so the question is, fact or fiction, a student must disclose a disability on their application. Is it fact or fiction? All right, let's see the answer. So it is fiction. Students do not have to divulge any disability on their applications. However, uh, we do suggest disclosing the news at some point by self-disclosing or referencing a disability in an essay 
or in an additional information section, it can help tell the student's story more effectively. And then the people that are reading the applications will have a deeper insight to any discrepancies, such as maybe particular schools that students attend, uh, test scores, or extracurricular activities. It does kind of explain a lot. Okay, next slide, please. So did you know that according to a nationwide survey conducted by UCLA, one in every five college freshmen, which as it says, 22% report having at least one learning disability or psychological disorder. Well, more and more colleges are taking notice and there's more and more changes going around. And we're, we're really excited that there more schools are really adopting some programs into their curriculum. Um, so just so you know, just go back one more, just go back for one quick second, if you don't mind, Allison. Thank you. Um, just to be clear what that means of the large umbrella of disabilities, you can have, of course, uh, attention, ADD, um, uh, ASD, neurodevelopmental conditions. And just also, it's important to keep in mind that while there's 22% report of having a disability, only 15% of that population actually registers with disability services. So a six to eight year graduation rate can be as low as 38% for this population of students. And it's actually lower when students don't register to take advantage of um, any services that they can have. And no college really segments the data to look at this large minority group. So what does that mean? So go ahead and, and um, next slide, please. So I, I did a presentation over the summer with Beacon College, which works very closely. It's a college in Florida that works very closely with the neurodiverse population. And um, uh, when uh, he had the person I was presenting with, uh, who's the head of admissions, had this slide, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is something that I really think that my students would really appreciate. And they're really assumptions that go into even like navigating the college process when you get there. So first, whenever you're looking at colleges, um, and what's in green are things that as parents, and family members that you might be able to help your student with, but the blue boxes are things that your student has to do on their own. So in green, you could see, so at the beginning, like now if your student's looking at colleges, we have to research the college process, fill out paperwork by a given deadline and update and send any updated testing information that your student might have, schedule a meeting with the school's Office of Disability Services to discuss needs, all right? So that's just the core component. Then your student is responsible for all the other aspects, which include attending individual meetings, receiving the accommodation letter, then they have to share the accommodation letter with individual professors. And then from there, they need to consistently self-advocate to professors to use those accommodations. Then they have to follow those deadlines and guidelines in order to receive out-of-classroom accommodations. Then they really need to evaluate the efficacy of the accommodations, repeat advocacy steps for every single new semester, and reapply accommodations every single year. This would be a lot 
anybody, certainly for any neurotypical student, they would be taken back by how much goes into it, let alone those with any sort of learning needs or special needs. Next slide, please. So Jody, Jody, you said something here. I want to, I want to comment because this absolutely. was something in my own journey with my, my daughter that I found um, interesting and irritating, quite honestly, um, was that, you know, so if you have a child that has a permanent disability, like it doesn't improve it, there's no chance of improvement. Like, seriously, do we have to revisit this every semester? And the answer is yes, you do. That's how it works. And <laughs> in the college system. So it is a little bit annoying. And, um, and there is a lot of, um, I would say parent training that goes on with the kids and, and it's not just getting the accommodations It's you know, it's so communicating them and like getting them to the professors and every place has a little bit different rules. But I just wanted to be clear on that, that even though your child may have a significant permanent disability they still do this per semester the uh, same way some... the same way they would do with a broken leg <laughs> like yeah. you know like where you have accommodations for like some temporary temporary thing what were you going to say Joni you actually a lot of times can get at least it yearly reevaluated, but every semester you do have to go through the process of connecting with your professors during that semester. And you have to make sure, depending on the school, how educated are, are, are the faculty with working with, you know, students who have some sort of um, accommodation. So um, I really, that's why finding the right school is so important. April, did you have something you wanted to add? Um, I did. I just actually did a disability etiquette training with a local uh, community college. And it was interesting because speaking with some of the professors at the end, they really don't realize um, what an accommodation is. It's not an unfair advantage, but it's to level the playing field. And so just having them be able to attend something like that and get some more education, because I know as educators, they have a lot of other things going on. And so trying to figure out another thing to put on their plate and how to manage it, it's sometimes difficult for them. So really encouraging students to advocate for themselves and to remember that that other person has things going on too and to approach the professor and just say, hey, I really want to do well in your class. I want to obtain this knowledge. So please help me do that. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Um, and one other thing, Jody, on this slide, and I think it's very important, and I think the way this slide has it, like right there at the beginning, schedule a meeting with the Office of Disability Services to discuss needs. I put there this right at the top. First, identify the schools that have the major that you want. Second, identify if their Office of Disability is good or not. Um, that's kind of like, in my mind, that's basically how we did because, and I know you're going to talk about this, but all offices of disability are not created equally. So you got to be sure that the one that you're dealing with is going to be able to meet your students needs. The school might not be a fit for you because their office of disability might not be up to par and they are all very, very different. So I, I think that I just love that this is at the beginning, because if, you, if your kid needs accommodations, this is so super important. It's not the same as public school. 
That's right. And we will talk about a little bit of some misnomers in regards to that. So the other thing that I also wanted to throw up here at the beginning or put on the screen rather at the beginning is um, talking about adjusting to college and helping your student with special needs adjust to college even before attending college. I work very strongly with my students almost from the get-go, which is why I love working, you know, having students start with me freshman year of high school, even though college is so far in the future, my goal is to also help them adjust to college while they're in high school. So by doing these steps and, you know, having an authentic awareness of what college is like, having an executive functioning system in place. Uh, I am not an executive functioning coach. I've never claimed to be, but I work with wonderful people in tandem when that we try to implement their whatever a student needs before they go to college. Um, and then even have them under, have your student understand that they're going to have setbacks and how do we handle them? Have a plan in place before they go to school. Learn about uh, what Allison and April were just talking about, self-advocacy and autonomy, and understand about that there is a healthy adjustment period that goes into college and not to just call it quits after a rough first semester because it's a rough first semester for everyone. So you just need to manage the expectations in advance. So next slide, please. So that's kind of, yeah, go ahead and, and click to the, yeah. So that goes into really what someone like me, um, an independent education consultant can do, okay? So average high schoolers work somewhere with 150 seniors or more. Um, if it's a public school, if it's a private school, definitely less. I personally don't take on more than 20 20 kids per application class. And I call them application class because many of my students might take a gap year. And so it really depends on when they're applying to colleges. So not necessarily when they're graduating. Sometimes I will take on a couple more depending on if they're second time families or whatever, but I really try to limit it so that I can give personal attention. Um, and even so when uh, some college uh, when the college counselors at a certain high school, even if they only work with a handful of students, they're often wearing several different hats and they don't have the ability to visit different college campuses. Someone like me, I visit close to 50 schools every year. Right after COVID, I went on a little kind of revenge spree. And um, in 2021, when I was allowed back on campus, must admit, I visited almost 88 schools in a year. I think that it was definitely a lot, but I felt that I needed to know what was going on because of COVID and what had changed with the test optional. A lot of schools, of course, went test optional. So we're able to help really develop a college wish, wish list that's going to really 
um, take all the all the students' needs and desires, majors, um, financial restrictions, everything into account, help them to find these colleges and compare these colleges. Also, we help students with uh, personal statements and supplemental essays, activity lists to help the position, to help the student best position their uh, student profile to be on the top of a competitive application pool and ultimately help them to find the right school. Okay, and then of course one more click and you'll see our job is to really lower the student's stress level. That's, you know, and also lower the stress level of the parent. So you're not responsible for helping your student, someone else's. In fact, I did not work with my own sons. Um, I switched with a colleague of mine. I worked with her daughters. She worked with my sons. Apparently, I don't know anything about what I do for a living, and apparently she didn't either, so it was just better to switch. So it is very normal not to, you know, be so, work so closely with your own students. So don't feel that they're alienating you just because they, they're not sharing all that information with you. So the next slide is going to really discuss the difference between working with high school counselors versus independent uh, educational consultants like myself. So it's still really important to create that bond between the school's counselors and the paid counselors because they really do two different things and each play a really important role in the process. So we talked a little bit about what I do. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the high school counselor on the next slide. So your um, students, yep, go ahead and switch slide, slides, please. I'm working on it. It's not okay. wanting, there we go. There, there we, we go. go. Okay. So um, yours, the, the school counselor is the primary letter of recommendation that colleges will read. So most colleges require to have a counselor's letter of recommendation. So a lot of times I'll hear from families, this is a new person, what am I supposed to do? And I, I, re I, I really wanna put your mind at ease here that every time um, at the end of every year, counselors are responsible for kind of giving a summary as to each of their students. So in case they leave, um, someone who fills in for them will have all that ability to write that letter of recommendation. Someone like me can't do that, okay? High school counselors also have the best perspective regarding where students in their schools are applying. So if your student goes to a private school, a lot of times, there's a group of colleges that their high school counselor might have a relationship with and might recommend. So it's good to know that. And they also will help you narrow down options for other teachers that you might want to request letters of recommendation for. And one more um, one more thing, just click one more thing. And then, and the other thing is to assist with Naviance. Now, not every school has Naviance, but Naviance is basically a school-centric research tool and a conduit to help students apply to colleges. Every school has a different platform. Um, the majority do use Naviance, but it's a matter of um, do you have to go through Naviance to even apply? And that is something that the high school counselors really have to deal with themselves, even though I work with students on 
like how to connect them. That's some, you know, primarily goes to the high school counselors. Yes, Allison, what can you add? I just wanted to say on these letter of recommendations, you know, we do have some families that homeschool. Um, and, and so our experience was um, we were able to get letters you know, through organizations that we volunteered with. I mean, we have like glowing recommendation letters from executive directors of various charities that, that the kids volunteered through it. Maybe it's a coach and there's, there's other places. So for people that are homeschooling that may not be in a public or a private school, uh, that's a thing uh, as well. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it. Okay. Let's go to the next slide. These yeah, they're a giving sticky. me a hard time. Yeah. yeah, they are a little sticky. They're coming. It's coming. Oh, okay, now too, too fast. How about that? Okay, perfect. Okay, so this is um, finding the right fit. So I, I love this slide because it kind of gives you an idea. These are the basic tiers um, that really schools can be divided into that offer students with disability and learning differences, whatever support that they have. So this is really important when you're looking at schools. Um, nowhere on their website is it going to say, we are a tier one school, um, but there's a lot of resources that have this information. And that's also what someone like me kind of, every time I go to a college, I you know there's a list of questions that I ask to kind of categorize them on my own. And there are some books and some res online resources that have them as well. Um, but let's go through the different tiers. So the tier one is basic support. And these are accommodations that meet with the federal mandate requiring reasonable support, often referred to as limited or self-directed programs. So if a student is required to have additional time almost every school is going to offer that. But not every school might offer, you know, an area where a student can take it um, like that is not perhaps in a professor's office or so you have to really see is there is there a facility? Is there um, someone who's going to help? How many counselors are in the learning services program per, you know, like how many counselors per student. So like um, if you have a large school, I'll give you a great example. There, I went to a, an extra large institution with 60,000 students and I walked in and I, I saw two counselors in a really small office. And I said, um, how many counselors do you have? And they said, but we're, we're it. And I said, oh, you have 60,000 kids here. And they said, yeah, but they only need extra time. And I, I couldn't, I, I literally like ran screaming, right? Um, I'm sure Allison wants to jump in with some more stories. I, I, I had a school that it was, a, it was a, I won't mention the school. Yeah, the I didn't school either, was right? lovely, but it, it was a one man show. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I, yeah, I was like, okay, and we're done. So anyway. Yeah. So some smaller schools might have a one man or woman show that might be okay, depending on the size and what the purpose of the school, like if it's, you know, obviously not necessarily designed for that, that sometimes can work okay, especially if they're accommodating and as, as, if the professors are buying into the program and they're educated. But, you know, like Allison says, you want to be very aware of who's running those programs. So it's here too is called um, coordinated services. 
These provide specialized services um, to anyone who submit adequate documentation of a disability. Um, they can do this either at uh, no, no cost tutoring or life skills classes, um, things like that. Uh, sometimes they'll have, they'll, they'll be a little, they'll go a little bit more extensive in accommodations that they might have, such as um, someone who's going to assist with scheduling, early, early registration, things that maybe you haven't necessarily thought of. So um, that would kind of go into the coordinated services. And the tier three or what might you might consider the top tier are structured programs. Um, these offer the most comprehensive set of services and are often called proactive programs. So um, these uh, have staff members with specialized training and um, so on and so forth. The next three slides go into this in a little bit more detail. So we can just go to the next one and quickly look at tier one again, basic support, basically applies with ADA, uh, routine documentation required and services are requested only on a volunteer basis. And tier two, I would say tier two is probably the most prevalent at some of the schools that maybe you'll be looking at where they're coordinated services that they have they they have programs that where there's at least one certified learning specialist they are knowledgeable and they are trained to help students they have you know maybe better facilities uh they might have specific courses and tutors that are available to help the student um it really again depends on the size of the school and what the school has to offer and again i i'm going to say this a few times don't assume that just because a school is easier to get into like a community college or a vocational school, that they are going to have coordinated services or structured services, okay? So you have to be very aware of that. We're gonna talk a little bit more about the different types of colleges, but I wanted to just bring that up here. I'll bring it up again in a minute. And then tier three are structured programs. Um, as I said, these are the most comprehensive. The director is usually involved in the admission decision to help provide flexibility. Services are structured and are involved, and um, students are involved in helping plan their needs and offered required, often required to set up an agreement. These can be paid or unpaid programs. So schools like, I'll just mention a few of them, Marist, Curry, um, schools like that where the you have to pay for the University of Arizona, where you pay for the program, those are still considered structured programs. Colleges like Beacon and Landmark, where they're built into the program themselves are also structured programs, okay? Like I said, <laughs> attached to fee. Okay, so um, I, this is a place where I'd like to just pause before we get into this, just to see if anybody has any questions about what I talked about, because before we go into the next section, what we just talked about really focuses primarily on, on like helping your student um, who might have special needs with like understand the process and I help you understand the process. So before we go into helping your students with the 
application process and putting them in a better position. I just wanted to see if anybody had any questions. So you could put something in the chat if you want, um, and I'd be happy to answer, but there'll also be time at the end where I'd be happy to answer any questions. So I don't see any chats coming through. Allison and April, if you do, I would be happy to answer it now. I don't see any right now. Okay, so we can come back to this. So then let's talk a little bit about um, what it's like to apply to college, regardless of being neurotypical or neurodiverse. And this includes demonstrated interest, uh, which is another way for colleges to help their yield and understand like if a kid is really showing that they want to come to our school, then they will, um, I, have a, I see a question. Um, so I will ask you, I will answer your question in a minute. Sorry about that. Um, in order to help their yield, which basically is that they want to admit is, is the right, the students that are going to accept their offers, then they um, want to make sure that a student has demonstrated interest. And there's many ways that your students can show this. Uh, campus visits, uh, social media engagement, if a, if a regional admissions person comes for a college fair, or if your student attends a public or private school, they can, they can do that. They can also email a contact. They will be tracked the second there's engagement. So even before your student applies to the school, they can um, definitely uh, be tracking your students. We're gonna spend some time talking about how, what to look for when visiting college campuses. April, did you have something you wanted to add here? I was just going to read the question for you if you wanted me to. Yeah, that would be great. To help you out. Yeah. Um, so to find the tiers of the colleges, you will have to inquire within the Office of Disability. Is that correct? No. Um, so, Kane, I wish that that were right. It's kind of more along the lines of someone, a specialist might know it a little bit better. KNW has a really good, the KNW Guide to Colleges, they are the ones that came up with that tier system that I use, that I also kind of evaluate. I kind of recommend using the different tiers as just like something in your head to think about. There's, you know, because you don't want a school to say, oh, we're a tier three school when in actuality they're a tier one. So we don't want to leave that up to the school to make, to be self, you know, kind of monitor their own. Um, so I actually suggest as part of your college visit, which we're going to talk about in a minute, making an appointment to go meet with someone in um, the accessibility or disability services. They all have different names, just so that you're aware. They don't have, it's not DSA, like it used to be disability services, and it's not like that anymore. It could be accessibility. It, they all have different names. So I really strongly advise you to make an appointment in advance, go in and speak with somebody there. They will inevitably say to you that they cannot answer any specific questions about your student, but that they can give you an, a generic overview, okay? So um, next slide, please. So when you visit college campuses, as I um, suggest, it's really great to um, make that appointment. And when you're evaluating, here are some important questions that I really encourage you to ask. Now, let me stress this. I can't stress this enough. 
very rarely are, um, and not all the time, some schools will be very familiar with this, but I would kind of stay away from admissions officers answering these questions. The questions really need to go back to the um, disability offices or accessibility. You can go back a slide, we're not at early admissions quite yet. Um, so when evaluating schools, um, you wanna ask what accommodations they offer, what would your student need to qualify for them? Um, what do they consider to be the most difficult majors or classes? Um, for, for students on campus, um, especially if there's ones with maybe um, some sort of uh, accommodation. Uh, do they have a transitional summer program? Those are always great to help with the transition. Um, can students with disabilities skip a foreign language requirement? Sometimes the answer is no. Even some of my um, tier three schools still require a foreign language or a world language. Sometimes it can be um, ASL. American Sign Language. Um, do you have a math or writing lab that's free? If a professor is not in compliance regarding the student's needs, how will the student be resolved? How will the situation be resolved? What's the four-year graduation rate for students with the same disability or a learning difference that maybe your student has? Are there organization support groups for your student? And will you um, will you be able to connect the students um, with other students with disabilities to get their, um, their take on how the school runs? That's usually a no, just so you know, but um, not all the time. Okay, now we can switch to the next slide. And I know I ran through those rather uh, quickly, but of course you can always, I know that they're recording this, so this will be super helpful. So one of the best predictors of enrollment is the early application round. So if at all possible, and there's a school that your student really wants to attend, and that's the number one school, early decision is the best way to show um, to show any admissions counselor that you're going to choose the school to attend, obviously, because it's a requirement, but there you have to keep in mind the financial restrictions that go along with early decision. Um, a few schools have restricted early action. I don't like there tend to be Ivy related priority and early action. The majority of the time show demonstrated interest, not all of the time, but there are also rolling decisions and regular decisions that are available for all students. But um, obviously, if you have a student who really wants to attend a school, ED is by far the best. And you can only ED to one school. You have to sign an agreement and um, your student has to sign an agreement and you as a, as a parent has to sign an agreement. So what about admissions? Let's look at the next slide and what goes- Can, can we talk about the early decision for Absolutely. a second? Because I think from a financial perspective, and I don't know if you believe this is true or not, but I mean- uh, when when my kids were going through the process, they it, we were really advised not to do the early decision because basically they know they've got you. There's no benefit to them to give you any good financial incentive. You're going there no matter what, and so 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 there's kind of this push pull on the early decision versus the financial thing, which you mentioned. Um, how how true is that, and and what what do you think about that? So more and more schools are offering um, families the opportunity that if they can get better aid at another school, that they would be released 
from their early decision um, agreement. Syracuse and Tulane are two that come to mind that specifically say that in all in everywhere. So um, in fact, Syracuse is by the honor program. <laughs> like it's the honor system. So you really don't even need any reason to pull your ED, which is interesting. Um, Tulane, you have to show the scholarship they will try to match. And oftentimes they do. Uh, so it really depends on the school and really only very, very few public schools have early decision. Uh, University of Virginia has it, Virginia Tech have it. They very rarely accept anyone in early decision, which is kind of funny. Um, but they, because they're a public school, they don't offer any sort of uh, financial um, disclaimer. But like, as you said, um, I think it was you, Allison, I had a student who, I knew she needed aid. She was actually on her own. Um, her parents were not giving a penny. She was a brilliant child. Um, and she got into um, her first choice school, despite the fact that I told her not to ED. She had done the pre-paperwork for financial aid. She thought she knew how much she was gonna get. And she got a lot of money but it wasn't enough to make it affordable for her. So she couldn't go there. So, and that means that she wasn't able to go to any other school other than a community college for her first year. She ended up staying at the community college for two years because that way she was able to um, enroll. She saved a lot of money that way. And then she ended up back at that original school as a junior and senior. So she graduated from that school with that degree, um, but she spent her first two years. So in, that was my question. Yeah. So if a person signs an early decision and they don't go, so then basically you're blackballed from any other universities, you have to go to the community college. So that is the, the, the crutch if you sign it. Not every school, you have to read their ED agreement. Every ED agreement is different. So like, like I was saying, Syracuse and Tulane will let you out if you get more aid somewhere else. Now, I have one other question on the early decision. So you sign this early decision. Are there any early decision agreements? And I, we know that all schools are created differently. Um, but are there er any early decision agreements that you sign that you're basically signing that whether you go there or not, the tuition is due? That, that you have to pay? Like, so in the event that a kid doesn't, and, and that, that girl, like, you know, yeah. in the event that she didn't go, um, is the tuition still due or you're just kind of, you've you messed yourself to, up for other universities? You have to pay the deposit, but that's it. So you'll lose 500. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, recent trends in admissions. So more and more schools think the heavens above, are using holistic admissions. Even larger schools before private schools really jumped on this bandwagon as far as using holistic admissions. And now more and more state schools are incorporating it, which basically is showing that um, they're looking at more than just grades and scores, okay? So they're looking at the high school curriculum and, where, and how many classes that you know, how many AP, IB, and honors classes a student took, what their GPA is, what their recommendations are like, what their, what they decided to do as far as their testing is concerned, their extracurricular activities. They're looking at all of that 
and taking that into account, um, as well as their essays, which is the next click, um, which is the personal statement and college application essay. All of those are considered um, differently. If you look at the common data set for each school, they don't have to fill it out, but we hope that most schools will fill it out. They will tell you where the weighted, where the weightings are. I will tell you the GPA is always number one, no matter what. Um, and then, but oftentimes you'll see number two, uh, maybe it might be the personal statement and the recommendations. Maybe it might be testing and extracurriculars. It depends. So if you look at the common data sets, all you need to do is Google common data set and the name of the school. You'll be able to see where like your, um, how, how the application will be really taken into account. Okay, next slide, please. Uh, so these are the different applications that I always encourage, like that I just want to point out. Common App is by far the most popular, not even a question. More and more schools are on it. The coalition is getting further on down the line. I'm not even going to waste my time with that. Of course, you guys have Apply Texas. The, that Those would fall under state college applications like the UCs, Cal State, Texas. You know, you apply and a lot of times you just have to, it's one application. Maybe there'll be supplemental questions for each school. Texas has that. Um, and then some schools like Georgetown, they have institutional applications where the only way you can apply are through the, the college's application. Um, maybe you might have a student can like thinking about going away. There's different applications for different places. The most popular, of course, being the UK. They're on the UCAS, UCAS system. I work with lots of students going abroad and they have actually wonderful supports for students who go abroad much better than I ever expected. When I did my recent visit to the UK, I, it was such a pleasant surprise. I can't even tell you. Um, and then military academies, which has a whole different process involved. And I will tell you, it is the one place that there's no accommodations ever provided, zero, nothing. So, and it will probably prevent you from getting in there. So if you want to go to a military academy, think about doing ROTC instead. Okay, so the application, um, so applications go live on August 1st. Um, almost all colleges have that. Not every, you know, the UCs don't go live until October. Um, they all have different due dates. So it's really important to look at those due dates if they're rolling early action, what they're looking for. And um, so you wanna make sure that you have your scores ready to go and that you um, complete, most of them have, nowadays everything's online and um, you want to make sure that you follow the directions very carefully with the word count and it's I always encourage students to recycle essays and be able to like take an essay maybe that you wrote for one school use it for another but you have to be careful that you're really up that you're retrofitting it to fit that certain school. Um, it's, it's a really great way to do it and but sometimes if you don't have someone really having a second reader, sometimes something can get by you. So you got to be careful about that. Um, go ahead. You wanted to ask a question now? Jody, on the on these essays, um, we really recommend that people get going on those summer breaks. So summer before the senior year, because there's a lot of myths on 
Oh, well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Cause like the senior year flies by and there's a lot of responsibility that your student has as a senior. And that's not including if they're in sports and things like that. So the, I, I, I always jokingly say, but it's true. There were a lot of tears the summer before senior year at my house because we required the, the, the essays to be done. And, but at the end of the day, at the end of the summer, when school started and things were fast and furious, Oh, thank heavens that was done. That was done. And so all we had to do was tweak them a little bit and, and then send them off. And like, like you said, edit them for the schools or whatever, but it was easy. It wasn't trying to do all this crazy homework to graduate and any other extracurricular activities. So I'm a huge fan of that. Talk about where they get the essay prompts. Yeah. So let me um, also say this, that I actually, with my students, um, have them finish their personal statements before their junior year is over. So I actually start working uh, in January of their um, application year. So that would be that the current juniors who are going to be applying next year, we've already scheduled most of our meetings so that we can get all of the personal statements done. Because even if the prompts don't change, and, and, and when I say prompts, I mean that Common App has the prompts. You can always set up an account for Common App now um, and see what the prompts are for this year. They often change. But the reason that a student can write them at any time is because the last question is always write about anything you want. And so there's always that flexibility that if it doesn't fit into one of those prompts, there's seven options that they can always choose the seventh option. Um, as far as when I say that applications go live August 1st, that means that the majority of colleges will have their supplemental essays up and available on August 1st. So unfortunately, you can't guess if you can based on what they had last year, but um, you know what they say about assuming. And I have found that more and more schools are changing their questions every year to make it a little bit more challenging and timely. So we tend to write a little template for how to write a why us. I have a boot camp every summer and that's when we do this. And it's usually in, you know, in August, it's always in August. So we have a template for how to write a why us, like why are you choosing us as a college? Why are you choose why major? Why are you choosing this major? an extracurricular essay and a community essay, which could be community service. And, you know, and we have those ready to go in the hopper and you can apply those to a lot of different questions that go out there. So when you ask as far as where they can find them, the best place is to look on Common App now for what they were this application season. They might not be the same, but they probably will be similar if that's the best way to. Oh, okay. And two other things on the essays. Um, <clears throat> one question is like, if somebody has hired your services and engaged your services, then I'm assuming that you review and suggest edits for the essays, or you have a team, somebody you work with that does all that. Cause I do believe that having that reviewed is, is important. So do you guys do that? Yeah, so I actually, um, being an English professor as I was, I do everything my, myself and I um, don't farm it out. There are a lot of people that farm it out and, you know, I'm not going to just, everybody has their own strengths. My strength is writing. That's actually why I originally got into it. I actually started just reading essays 
And um, so, and that's why I'm kind of small. And, and the benefit for that is you always get me. The negative of that is if you come to me late, I'm usually full. So that's why I say, come to me early. You get, you get me. It's, you know, it's basically, I, I, I personally, and a lot of my colleagues um, will charge a set fee and do as much as they can to help. It doesn't charge by the hour. Other people do charge by the hour. So you just want to see what's best for, for your student in that way. So I go, I have a system with Google Docs where I go back and forth with students. And then once we and uh, we go through a brainstorming process and once everything is approved, I always say, okay, you need to get a third set of eyes on this just for because we've gotten too close. If you want it to be a parent, that's fine. I've always preferred English teacher. I'll say that. And I said, but know this, you're not starting over again. They're, them taking a look at it is not them saying, oh, I don't like it. We're redoing it. You're asking them just to make sure that there's no grammar or, you know, because I, my whole purpose and a lot of IECs like myself, we want to find the student's authentic voice, not the voice of the parent, not my voice. So I put, you know, a lot of it starts with the students brainstorming and I will help them with the structuring and the grammar but it is their ideas, it is their voice. So when they give it to, sometimes if a student gives it to the parent and the parent basically says, no, I don't like this, it really doesn't help the students, you know, really like feel good about themselves. Which is a great segue into parents, as much as you care and important, don't write the essay, um, the guidance, the people that are reading the essays, they're totally hip to that. They totally know when the mom wrote the essay. So don't do that. <laughs> Um, have your student work with somebody if they need help. I understand that some students do need help, but have them work with somebody. And um, it's a it's a real bad idea to write it for them. Oh, oh <laughs> <But>, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yes. Um, so the next thing that we already kind of talked about letters of recommendation. Uh, how many is too many? It, every school will have a number. They'll max it out. So uh, Clemson allows for, I always joke, because Clemson allows for something like 20. I, you don't need more than three. I, 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 that's ridiculous. Um, who do you ask? I think we kind of, out, you know, Allison, April, and I kind of already made that suggestion. And um, this thing here, should I waive the right to read my letter? Absolutely. If you do not waive that right, then colleges will assume that you had an impact on what is being written. So you can actually send a letter through the common app that will go to any of your, your recommenders. They will write the email and it will uh, they will send in their letter via email to the platform and you will never see it. So no one's going to write a letter on your behalf who is going to disparage you, hopefully, or your student, but you want to find someone who really knows your student really well that can give like a lot of specific examples, okay? The college interview, this is another great opportunity. There's a couple of different interviews. There's an informal interview where students can ask questions and then, then and they're not evaluated as far as application goes. But then there's evaluative interviews that are part of the application process. They tend to be more selective schools um, or specialized schools. And then extracurricular activities, more and more schools are asking for resumes. They're all optional. It is the very first thing I do with my students 
students. So I get them freshman year. They may not have a lot to add. We focus on activities, but um, it teaches them, okay, well, here's the foundation that you have. We need to make some things, we need to add some substance here. And it also, te and I have had so many of my students who graduated college come back to me and say, my resume is still the same template that you gave me when you started, when we started working together. So it's able to grow with the students. Jody, I have a real quick question. Sure. Um, as far as that resume goes, would you say that since you're starting that the freshman year, I think that would be a really good way for them to look at their activities and plan things so that they are not overcommitted and that they're picking things that are going to lead them ultimately to their goals. Do you find that the case? Yeah, I actually do. Um, I work with students on their activity list before we even start on a resume. So I have them write down every, if they have an activity, I want them to write down everything that they're, that they're doing in the activity. My students who are in sports, they never write anything. They just say, what do you want me to say? And I'm like, oh, so you don't have practices. You're not learning special skills. You're not learning teamwork or communication. And they go, oh, okay. You know, so then they go back and do that. But I want to know every little bit. And that way we can use the language and extrapolate that to incorporate it on a resume. And the resume is actually an academic resume. So it's totally fine to put extracurriculars or honor societies and things like that, because that is really the student's primary job is being in school. So it is very normal. Um, of course, there's other resumes. I also work with art students because um, I was one and I had one. And so I just kind of had, you know, got, got into, of course, the arts. I just found out today that my student, one of my students got the presidential scholarship for the arts at University of Miami, $100,000. And so I have to say that, you know, there's always things that you can do for like, if you're going to be recruitable for sports or there's theater, or if you have a portfolio for architecture or art and design, those are other things that we work on way in advance. Those should be starting to be built freshman year. Okay, so um, did, did, did that answer any questions, April, do you think? It did. Okay, great. So let's talk a little bit about essays. So the primary essay or what a lot of people say is the essay is the personal statement. Um, primarily, it's 650 words in length, and it's a narrative about the student. It should not be a regurgitation of what I did in my lifetime. It really needs to focus on one thing. I um, use a certain model where students can uh, write, like they need to determine if they're uh, writing about something that is about them, like something they've overcome or what they want to do in life. And then supplemental essays are for the schools. And then there's some short answers. And then on what's an optional essay? I always say there's no such thing as an optional essay. And I know we're running out of time. So I really just want to run through the next couple of things quite quickly. Not everyone is ready for school right away. In fact, I would say more and more students, especially when COVID happened, um, are interested in gap years. Uh, I love a gap year program. I'm I, I'm probably one of the biggest proponents of gap years have always been, it's a gift. They've been doing it in, in, abroad for years and here are some benefits and that you can take a quick look at. Um, you can take a screenshot if you want to or whatever. Um, and let's go on to the next slide, which talks a little bit about community college. I do wanna say, and I kind of mentioned it here, there's some pros there as far as costs and flexibility and smaller classes and helping your students transition. But the cons are really, really prevalent.
prevalent, obviously. There's limited curriculum. There's really lack of campus life. There's, I have not found in all of my, you know, and we have a really locally, some really great community colleges. It's okay as far as um, accommodations are concerned, but I would put them almost between it. Yeah, they're really a tier one. You know, they're not a tier three. Um, and is it easy to transfer? Our college is going to take those credits because unless it's an in-state college, they are not required to take those credits. And then comes decision day. What do you need to look at? That's the next slide. As far as what school you're going to decide on, you want to revisit your priorities. Try to visit an admitted student's day because you'll see other students there that are going to um, go there. You have to make your decision by May 1st. Consider the financial implications, um, uh, other options that you have as far as if you're not accepted into the first round, which could be a spring admission, which could be study abroad for a semester. Uh, then there's, of course, wait lists. What, what can you do to make your uh, application a little bit jump out? And then um, potentially transferring and what happens when you ultimately get that sad uh, rejection. Okay, next slide, please. Um, this, this really goes into like succeeding after matriculation. I, I don't think we have enough time. I know that both April and Allison have, maybe I'll come back and do another one about transitioning. I work with um, a, a person who does a lot of work with transitions and um, really how to set yourself, your student and your family up for success once they're in college. But the most important thing is to, to make sure that you go through the FERPA waiver because you are not allowed to be involved in anything at the school unless your student signs that FERPA waiver. And it also does, it means that you can access it. It doesn't mean that the school voluntarily gives you that information. We also recommend um, whether your child has a disability or your neurotypical kids, we often recommend a power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney of a just in case something happens. That's just good best practices. You've seen things before. I know in Texas, the kid that went missing from Texas State, there's always something every year from one of the colleges. I mean, there's been stuff going on in the last few weeks, not in Texas, but um, it's really, really important to have that. But that FERPA, you can argue all day long. I pay for this. You should talk to me. It, it will go nowhere. The FERPA is really, really important. So thank you for bringing, um, bringing that up. It is so true. And you know, on your last slide, Jody, um, what I would say is that time period that you know you were talking about decision day is May 1st. The frustrating thing is like if you're a planner, if you have a plan and you're a mom, your dad, you, you're, you, you have a plan and you work your plan, everything's out the window the year you're doing this, okay? Because you're sitting there waiting. You're waiting for the fast, you know, you're waiting for the decisions. You're waiting, you know, you're waiting for the financial aid. You're waiting to see if they qualified for the scholarship and all these deadlines are all different. And, and so it feels like that deadline day is May 1st and you find your last letter, April 27th of the, the, the finance, the missing piece of the financial aid that you were looking for. So it, it's, it's a long spring is all I have to say, because you, because you literally don't know where your kid is going to be in the fall. <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, most schools will give you at least a response by March 31st. I do want to say that, um, here's some key takeaways here, but, um, uh, I, I give a lot of information. I have, a, just so you know, I have a YouTube channel as well. I visit a lot of colleges. And so you can see a lot of my college 
um, tours on there. They're all on there. And here's some key takeaways. And if you um, need to contact me, I think the next slide has all my contact information on it. Well, there's and my we didn't mention, but everybody's getting a copy of today's slides and the recording, Great. not just the recording. So um, all of this information you guys are going to have at your fingertips on how to contact Jody. And the key takeaway on contacting Jody is do it early or you're not going to get her because she only takes 20. So um, when it comes to if you need help navigating this or you want to take a step back and you want your student to work with a professional and kind of get where they're going, um, you know, she's your girl. That's for sure. And I know, April, I know that we have uh, a few of your slides, a few of our slides, and we've got our um, upcoming webinars. You guys will be able to click that link and find the upcoming uh, webinars. Um, April, um, do you want to, I know we're kind of over time. Um, you've got a few slides in here. Tell us a little bit more about you and your services. Okay, I'm with Vocational Rehabilitation Services and we do provide free counselors, uh, which are able to work with people like Jody. They work with 504 students. They work with schools. Many of our vocational rehabilitation counselors are previous teachers. And if you'd like more information, I've got my Padlet resources there and you can get a hold of me. I've learned a lot today, Jody. It's so good to talk with you and Allison. You're always wonderful with full of so much information. And I do want to encourage parents that no matter what deadlines they have before them, there's always a tomorrow and there's always success around the corner with hard work, whether or not your plan works out exactly like you thought it would. That's so true, April. Thank you for sharing that. Guys, um, she's got some additional slides in here. We've got some additional slides in here on how to connect with us. You've probably seen those before. So um, we'll leave that at that, at that and kind of um, end on time, as close to on time as we can. Thank you guys, everybody, for um, spending your lunch hour with us taking uh, the time to, to hear about this. Again, you'll get an email later today with the recording and the slides, everybody's contact information. So if you have additional questions on um, anybody's services, um, then we will certainly uh, get those que questions answered for you. Thanks so much, everyone. I hope everybody has a great afternoon. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.